This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with a Robin Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. That means I'm Mob. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good midnight, uh, good whatever, and and during the course of this week, um, happy May Day. So, uh, there you go. Um, now, it, it's it's a lovely sunny day in uh, in beautiful Black Blackburn South in uh, in downtown Melbourne, but it is a bit on the chilly side. Which oh, is is actually for the Shenandoah one hundred and fifty uh, years ago for the Shenandoah and also for Blackburn South. Mind you, it's it's a little bit chilly for um, for Melbourne, which is not the coldest place in the world. So at the moment, it's about uh, sixteen degrees Celsius, which uh, for those of our listeners um, in. America is around sixty degrees Fahrenheit, and um, mm-hmm. as we'll see a little bit later, that, that's about the temperatures that the the Shenandoah is facing up in the the North Pacific. Oh, tell us where we are, Rob. I, 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 it's funny you ask. Um, yes, so at, at the moment, um, around early May, the Shenandoah is up in the North Pacific, and um, it is basically. Um, it's about as far north as Melbourne is south. So Melbourne, uh, Australia, is about uh, 30 to 5 degrees latitude south. And um, the Shenandoah is currently around 35 degrees latitude north. So since leaving um, Melbourne, which was, I think, uh, I don't I think it was on February the 17th, 1865, in a little over three months, they've gone through 70 degrees of, um, of latitude. And because there are only 180 degrees of latitude, they're, they're getting on towards having gone across half the world. I could be wrong there. I, I often And am, I think that the thing that upsets them the most about that is that, uh, at least for the last week or so, they haven't seen a single sail, have they? Which has made them very upset. Yet they have not seen a single sail. So um, we, we are, I think, going to have to delve into the uh, the details of, uh, of some of the diaries to... Um, yeah. work out exactly what the Shenandoah is doing this week. But uh, we might also spend a little bit of time um, going through what's, um, what's happening 150 years ago this week um, back in the United States. And uh, the, the main thing that's happened is that the, the Civil War has, has pretty much finished. But um, then, of course, President Lincoln was assassinated. He was assassinated, and then uh, in a great outpouring of grief, there was a... Uh a succession of funerals that were held uh, as part of a train journey taking his body back to Springfield. Yes, yeah. So um, obviously he, he was killed in Washington. Um, now this is uh, we learnt all this from a very interesting presentation by Bayard Shepherd at the American Civil War Roundtable uh, of Australia Inc. Um, a week or so ago. Um, but so uh, Lincoln was, was was assassinated in Washington um, at at Ford's Theatre, I believe. At Ford's Theatre. Um, There's that, that rather appalling joke to yes. Mrs. Lincoln. Yes, but apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, did you enjoy your night? Yes, the, 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 yes. yeah, one of the rare jokes about critics who are normally just just ignored. Um, so um, he was assassinated in Washington, um, but he had lived 
the most significant part of his life where he'd been a lawyer and a rising man, he'd been living in Springfield, Illinois, Illinois yep. um, not to be mistaken for Springfield, uh, where, where the Simpsons live. Which um, I believe is never clearly defined, is it? No, no, it is, it is never... Because there are a lot of Springfields. There are, oh, well, yes, yes. It's probably, in the Australian context, it's a bit like Bayswater. There are Bayswaters all over the place in Australia. If somebody says they come from Bayswater in Australia, say, I need more information. Um, but, um, so, because... Uh, so, so it was decided to bury him in, in Springfield, but... Um, he was basically given funerals, as in they didn't actually bury him, but they had the full funeral service, um, in, in, I think it was something like 13, 13 state capitals. So starting in Washington, the train then went by it fairly, went fairly circuitous Baltimore, route. it went to Harrisburg, Philadelphia, <clears throat> New York, Albany, New York, which is the capital of New York, Buffalo, New York, Cleveland, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis... Michigan City, Indiana, which I think was a very small one. Michigan City is yes, yes, one but... where about 10 people came on the train, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chicago, Illinois, and finally in Springfield on uh, May the 3rd. So, yeah, that, and apparently it also passed. And I, I'm, I'm using that wonderful resource, Wikipedia, here. I could hold that up to the microphone, <laughs> but it wouldn't be quite as effective. Um, the train went through 444 communities in seven states. Yep. And the people came out to watch the train go past in, in most of those. It must have been a very moving experience. And uh, probably one of the biggest uh, events like this in the 19th century. There were literally millions of people came to see the train. Yeah, I, I believe Bayard um, quoted an estimate that uh, 20 million people had, had, wow. had, had seen the, the, the train go past, which, which again, yeah, for, for the 19th century, I, I can't really think of um, any, any other event that uh, would have have matched it. I mean, when, for instance, um, um, yeah, when, when Queen Victoria died early in the twentieth century, um, her, her body wasn't was not taken in state throughout throughout England. It basically went from Buckingham Palace to to to, to be buried um, in Frogmore, I believe, her country home on the Isle of Wight, where you can still go and visit her tomb today. Well, the, well actually. Maybe she did have a grand procession throughout throughout <laughs> England, but I, and anyway, that that was a twentieth century uh, event because uh, course, barely, but yes. Well, because Queen Victoria um, reigned from um, eighteen thirty-seven to uh, I think it was nineteen oh one. So, uh, and, and even when Lincoln was finally buried, that wasn't even even the end of it. I think they moved him several several more times. They did, and then there was a a plot uh, about twenty-five years later to. Um, some people plotted to actually steal his body. So in the end, uh, Lincoln's son had a gigantic quantity of uh, cement poured on top of the uh, tomb to make sure that couldn't happen again. And also possibly so his body wouldn't get moved around again. Yes, it was, it was moved a number of times. Well, I, look, I think when you are... You know... When, when you are one of the most revered presidents and world leaders, these, these sorts of things um, also happened to Charlie Chaplin. His his body, that... yes, his body was uh, dug up and held to ransom. Oh, and apparently a ransom was paid. Well, well, and, and he wasn't a leader, but in the Great Dictator, he did play play one on, on oh, the, in a movie. So, 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 so there you go. And he, and he certainly. So while did, all this is going, I'm sorry, I, I, I need to I need to go on with this. I, I need closure on that <laughs> anecdote, Michael. Um, did did Charlie Chaplin's body ransomers pay up? Because I think I think quite frankly, you know, 
but much though I, I, I love my, my, my relatives, I think if somebody wanted money for one of their bodies, I might just say, uh, how about you just keep it? Well, yeah, there's not really too many threats you can make, is there, <laughs> yeah. I guess, but... Um, you know, pay, pay up, pay up, or your granddad has already got it. No, I'm, well, the I'm thing not is, right? That. Eventually, um, if they keep sending you pieces to say, you know, pay up, yeah, you'll you have the pay body. up for long enough. <laughs> oh, that's that's rather that's rather awful. Um, yes, it was in uh, again. I'm going to hold Wikipedia up to the screen. Yep. In March 1978, his coffin was dug up and stolen by. Uh, to Bulgarians and was held for ransom in an attempt to extort, extort. extort money. Yes. And uh, they were caught and the coffin was found buried in a field nearby. And it also, like Lincoln's tomb, is now buried in a enormous amount of reinforced concrete. Well, I think that only ha- you, you, that only has to happen once, and and an enormous amount of concrete is a, is a very easy way to fix that problem. So I think, yes. um, and and of course with Charlie Chaplin, they had the previous example of what had happened with Lincoln. So they could have gone right. We, we, we've got a procedure: get the concrete mixer and uh, and let's let, let let's start a pouring. So I just yeah. think you know of, of all the things. Things you can do in a life of crime. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very weird one. But anyway, so while this was going on back in the US, of course, the crew of the Shenandoah are blissfully unaware that Lincoln has died mm-hmm. and that there's this great outpouring of grief in, in the northern states. And they're proceeding on, assuming the war is still going and they're going to do their war-winning blow against the, uh, the northern whaling fleet. The big problem is... Uh, over the space of the last uh, week or so, and I'm now holding actu- actually a book up to the microphone. I'm going to riffle its pages so you can see that. This is the uh, resource we've been using quite a bit of, which is the Shenandoah Memorable Cruise, which is the journals of William C. Whittle, who yep. was the first officer. And uh, he has recounted that over the last week or so, not very much has happened. He's uh, regretted the fact that they haven't been able to see any sales. They did note, and we've we've talked about this before, they did note some whale food. And if you remember, what, what's whale food? Uh, right? Whale food, I believe, is what we now call krill. So it's basically a, uh, a variety of plankton, which obviously uh, whales will, will eat in enormous quantities. So if you can see some krill around, you're probably going to eventually see some whales, and then you're going to probably eventually see some whalers. Yeah, the, the sad thing is that they did see some whale food, but this time they didn't see any any whalers. Uh, the only other real thing of interest that has happened in the last week or so is that um, two of the Frenchmen who came uh, came to us from our first prize, the Alina, yes. Louis Rowe and Peter Raymond, familiarly known as Louis and Peter, <laughs> well, fancy that, <laughs> expired today. They did not feel like re-enlisting but desired to leave the ship at the first opportunity. I am very sorry they do not re-enlist for when they get clear. We will probably be in a European port, and in the meantime, they will get no pay. Yeah, we, we have we have mentioned this before, and I think it's probably very lucky for the Shenandoah, and also probably very much planned to that effect that yeah, they they the six months re-enlistments were were not up in Melbourne. So yes, or, yeah, yeah, because I think that would have been because uh, I'm I'm afraid that uh, Louis and Peter, for a bit of foreshadowing for you, there ain't no European port for some time. <laughs> I'm holding the uh, journal up, and there's a good fifty percent of it to go. <laughs> So, uh, 
that's pretty much all that happens. They just continue their sailing up uh, towards the north, looking out for sails. If you remember, they were crossing the uh, main way that ships would go from San Francisco to China. So Ooh. they were hoping to come across uh, something, a, a Yankee ship that was doing that. But, but they didn't. So, uh, while Mr. Whittle has not much to write about there, we've been also looking at uh, Mr. Mason's journal. Yes. And uh, there were two very interesting things we talked about last week. One was Mr. Mason's pants. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, oh, Podcasting uh, gold. Yes. The other was the uh, books that he's been reading, and we did do a little diversion into his... Uh, his predilection to use French whenever he was writing about something a little bit uh, outre. Uh, yeah, yeah, we still haven't translated that bit of French, so we, we shall perhaps uh, leave. We, we'll leave that to a later date. But um, one thing I'm not sure that we mentioned uh, because now, now um, last last our last episode, he was reading um, Nicholas Nickleby, uh-huh. and I am also reading Nicholas Nickleby, except. He's a much... Midshipman Mason is a much quicker reader than me. And, uh, okay. and, and he is finished. And um, he's got a whole ship to sail too, right? Yeah, well, that's exactly <laughs> right. I, I, I am, you know, helping to run a house in Blackbird South. But uh, uh, now he's now um, now started on Martin Shuttlebeat. So he's having a good go at all of so the So has he knocked off Nicholas Nickleby? He has knocked off Nicholas Nickleby. Um, on the other hand, he didn't have Wi-Fi and internet back in those that, 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 days. Yeah, yeah. And also possibly the... We might find this out along the way, but possibly the Shenandoah's library um, consisted of the books of Charles Dickens. Because basically, uh, for this time, um, Charles Dickens was the, you know... um, the the J.K. Rowling of of that time. And basically, if probably any library you went to in the world, if if you didn't like Charles Dickens... um, you might not have a lot of uh, lot of other choice. So but these were these were like the the first release of these books, were they? Well, no, not really. No, no. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, Dickens had been writing since the eighteen thirties, but he, he was still writing at this stage. Uh, but uh, Nicholas Nickleby, I think, was uh, from the from the eighteen forties. Um, oh, and okay. and now Martin Chuzzlewit. Um, have a slight spoiler here in that um, Martin Shuttlewit is going to very much annoy Midshipman Mason in some respects because Martin Shuttlewit is the the only one of uh, Dickens' works um, that has a, a portion of it set in set in America. So oh. Ma- Martin Shuttlewit, the, um, the 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 hero or the protagonist, um, heads over to America and has a variety of adventures with uncouth Americans. That. Oh, and I'm sure Charles Dickens had a great time with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I believe he did. I haven't actually got to that bit yet, but I'll, I'll try and do so by next week. But yes, um, so uh, Charles Dickens had a lot of fun with that. And um, Charles was actually somewhat annoyed with the Americans because there was no copyright treaty at that time um, for North America. So basically... Um, uh, it, it was like um, these days when, um, say, Louis C.K. or somebody like that comes to Australia, as they are as they are walking around in Melbourne, people will come up to them and, and they will say to Louis C.K., I love your show. And Louis C.K. will think to himself, um, but you, my show is not released in Australia. <laughs> so, so everybody who is coming up to him saying... Saying, saying, love your work, um, has in fact been stealing his work. And, um, yeah, uh, so the, the situation was very similar with, uh, with Charles Dickens because he was massively popular in America uh-huh. and, and also massively stolen. 
Um, but in fact, um, Charles Dickens' uh, struggle to um, to get his own copyright enforced uh, in America was part of the reason why he is so scathing about the English legal profession in later great books such as Bleak House. So I, I very much hope that um, uh, yeah, that Mr. Minster. Now I'm pretty sure Bleak House would have been published by 1865. I think it was published. So by uh, Dickens is actually quite critical and satirical about British society in the uh, yes, of his yes, heavily so. Yes. So I guess that uh, Mason was quite enjoying that, but then didn't quite like it when it was uh, flipped around and uh, the same was being done to American. That would be my guess. Yes, although it's it's it's. Uh, while Charles Dickens caused very great offence, um, basically, um, unlike some other people have called very great offence, everybody says, you have caused us great offence, sir, you're a genius, so we forgive you. Uh, although he did have to eat some crow. He had a later, uh, a later triumphal tour. So he went to America twice. He had a later triumphal tour of America where he basically turned up and spent uh, large portions of time apologising for Martin Chuzzlewit and everybody then you know, said, read the death of little Nell. And he said, oh, OK, shucks. And then they clapped. So, so he, did, he did get over it in forgiven. the end. But yes, um, but yes Midshipman Mason will, will not at all be, uh, be happy with uh, the American portions of, uh, of Martin Chuzzlewit. Now, another book. Now, we might have mentioned this last time, but... I, I think it's worth talking about again. But um, another of the books that Mr. Midshipman is reading is a book called The Voyage of the Sumter and Alabama. Now, now Michael, do you, do you know anything about that book? Yes, that was written by the famous Captain Raphael Sims, who was the captain of both those ships, which were the first of the most and most uh, famous, up until the Shenandoah, of course, of the Confederate Raiders. Raphael Sims... Uh, wrote this book, and it was published, first published in 1864. So you would have to think that uh, it must have been fresh off the presses when uh, when Mason got his copy. Well, absolutely, especially since um, they, left, um, they left Liverpool in, in October. I think that's probably where they got it. But it's rather, that's rather better. Midshipman Mason is, is on a Confederate raider uh, reading a book about a Confederate raider. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and... and, and and writing a journal about being on a Confederate that writer. is very very meta. <laughs> so Raphael Sims's book is is uh, talked about the two ships that he was uh, in command of. the The first one, the Sumter, that actually had uh, the problem of when it went in for some repairs at Gibraltar, mm. it uh, got blockaded and couldn't come out. Yes, and I believe now, now, now cause we, we, have, we have talked about this before. Now, now I, I'm presuming, therefore, that that was the one where basically Sims uh, sold the boat in Gibraltar, decamped, and then went overland to go and get another ship. Yes, that, that's essentially what he did. That's why the uh, Shenandoah is very, very uh, leery about going to Cape Town yes. in case they get stuck there, uh, blockaded in there. And they were also a bit worried about going to Sydney. Which is, you know, another another major port in in Australia. That's why they went to Melbourne. Yeah, and I think also Sydney would would, would also be one where you'd be more likely to lose crew than uh, than pick them up. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> he was he was captain of both those ships. He wrote the, the this memoir, and it must have been uh, a big effort to do that and get it out in 1864. It's a, it's quite a long book. Well, you see, again, now again, possibly with an eye to future publication, um, he was probably writing some of it. While he was going, but again, yeah, they, they do have the, these books that, that do come out in in wartime. You know, the, the Red Baron, Baron von Richthofen, wrote the Red Battle Flyer, which was published um, yes. published in nineteen seventeen. I, I don't think there's any real suspicion that um, 
Baron von Richthofen actually wrote that book, but it was certainly ghostwritten for him. Um, Enemy Coast Ahead by Wing Commander Guy Gibson of Dam Busters fame. Um, mm-hmm. It also came out um, not long after the, the Dam Busters raid. So th- there is certainly a long history of producing these these works for for propaganda appeal. But um, Well, I think Mason could also be reading this to get some clues and hints about <laughs> how to be on a Confederate raider. Yes, although he's not really getting the hints he needs because uh, the uh, the Alabama had uh, had, as we've mentioned many times before, had many more guns. Um, although, also, if if he had wanted to find out about life on the Alabama, he could have just gone and asked Mister Smith Lee, who was actually on the Alabama. Maybe he was <laughs> reading through the book to see if his friends were mentioned. <laughs> there were also a couple of the uh, crew were had been on board uh, yes. Sims's ships as well. So. Yeah, I think this makes a very interesting, very meta reading. (laughs) And I guess um, he'd be very keen to ensure that the Shenandoah didn't share the fate of both the Sumter and the Alabama because the Sumter was stuck in in a port and blockaded. And, of course, the Alabama got sunk. The the Alabama got sunk. So, now, um, uh, in in this week, we've had May Day. So, um, now, now, Mr Mason notes... um, Monday was May Day, but by no means resembled the May Days at home. Now, that's where, really, in, in a journal, you want to say, well, so, <laughs> Mr. Mason, how do you celebrate the May Days at home, you know? Was that tripping merrily around a maypole, perhaps? <laughs> probably not. Probably not in Virginia. Um, maybe tripping merrily around a pitcher of bourbon, but who knows. Anyway, um, now, uh, this, we referred to this earlier. Although we are in latitude 35 north, about that of Virginia... The weather is by no manner or means so agreeable as it is there at the same season. Although the thermometer is only 60 degrees, still coming from the tropics where it wandered about between 80 and 100, this sudden change makes one feel decidedly chilly. Last night in the mid-watch, for instance, although I was well bundled up, I felt the cold not a little. This morning I began to become accustomed to it. Well, uh, I have to come in here with a, a... couple of spoilers here midshipman basin is going to get a lot colder <laughs> that's right before it gets uh, and did you say that uh, some crewman's window couldn't shut uh, that actually yes there's, there's, a, there's another entry by by midshipman mason again where you feel like saying spoilers or watch out <laughs> where he says uh, the yes the the window in the midshipman's berth doesn't shut and it says he says at one point this has been very pleasant during our voyage through the tropics but it might get a little cold, uh, yes. yes, and I think it will. Yes. That's, that reminds me of a story that my uncle told me. Remember, I uh, very early in the piece we had talked about my journey back from uh, Perth to Melbourne with, with your uncle, the the ex submariner. Yes, he'd, he'd been submariner, but before that, before he got in submarines, he'd actually served on board uh, the Australian Navy's only aircraft carrier. Uh, which I believe we bought from the English. We did. It was the HMS Melbourne. Yes. And uh, the big problem with the HMS Melbourne is it was uh, built by the British to serve in the North Sea. Which is very cold. Which is very cold, yes. And uh, the HMS Melbourne, serving in the Australian Navy, spent a lot of its time serving in places like the Philippines, the tropics, and the Pacific. Fair enough. His problem was he was a uh, an engineer, and his cabin. He was very lucky he got a cabin, but it was right next to the engine room. 
Oh, do you? Yeah, and I think if you were serving in the North Sea, that'd be great. But yes, you'd be nice and toasty. But uh, yes, he did explain that in fact it was so hot in his cabin, you couldn't touch the wall that was next to the engine room. Oh dear. And I think serving in uh, serving in the tropics that would have been uh, decidedly unpleasant. Well, uh, now, 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 yes, talking about uh, talking about unpleasant weather. Um, so uh, it is need- again. He, he says it is needless to say that we did not celebrate. Mister Midshipman Mason, this is uh, not not Michael's uncle. Uh, we did not celebrate the first of May as we would have done under more propitious circumstances. But if we did not, Neptune and Aeolus have had a regular spree of it for the last three days. For ever since the first of May, it has been blowing a pretty stiff gale of wind. Our ship behaves as well as could be expected, but from her shape, long and narrow, she rolls tremendously and has much heel when sailing at a wind or lying to. This morning we were going along very nicely with the wind abeam and the yards nearly square and making about nine and a half knots. But about noon, the captain, either thinking we were going too fast with our close reefed topsails and reefed foresail, or not liking a certain rattling noise accompanied by an uneasy motion about the rudder head and chains, gave orders to haul up the foresail, first the mizzen topsail, and lay to the gale. So here we lay. I Oh, laying to a gale. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking back to the uh, Aubrey Maturin novels I read. Yes. Uh, that doesn't sound very pleasant at all. I, I think a certain rattling noise in your rudder hidden chains also sounds sound, sounds yes. a bit of a worry. Now, again, we, we've, we've quoted a number of times in the past where um, Executive Officer Whittle is very contemptuous about the fact that... Scathing. Captain Waddell likes, um, likes taking down a sail. He doesn't like sailing with, with a full sail. But, again, I, I think if you're the captain, you know, and the entirety of the blame of the ship hits something is... Uh, going to be up to you then then you wouldn't be worried about that and of course uh, again spoilers um in a month or so maybe even less than that they're gonna have to start worrying about um sailing full tilt into icebergs yes yeah yeah and it's not like and and uh, mason could of course learn this from uh, reading the, the book he was reading it's not like they can easily go into a friendly port for repairs because every time you do that there's a risk of getting blockaded not being able to get out again. So you can understand why uh, Waddell is actually being cautious here, I think. But laying heel to the wind, that sounds like you just sit there taking it and uh, not going not going in any direction. And uh, probably everyone's feeling very seasick, I would imagine. Yes. Well, now, now again, so um, um, 150 years ago yesterday... Um, I hope the gale, if we have one, will not commence until tomorrow, for I want some sleep. Last night I did not sleep a wink, but was rolling about in my bunk all night until four o'clock when I turned out. There is nothing like a hammock for comfort in a seaway, and I often regret mine in bad weather. So you see, uh, now, now when Mr. Mason had been presumably you know, first-rate seaman Mason, then um, he would have had a hammock, but the officers don't have hammocks. They have berths. So, in fact, it's, ah, it's, it's a lot... It's a lot yes. in, in that respect, in a storm, it's actually a lot harder to be a, an officer than, than to be a man. Because, yes, so. you'd, you'd be, be um, thrown out of bed, probably. Y- yes, you'd be thrown out of bed, but you're a lot less likely to be um, thrown into irons by Executive Officer <laughs> Whittle. So, so there, <laughs> there is that. Now, look, we'll, we'll, we'll have one, one last quotation. Um, so... Um, 
a very wet and disagreeable night it has been raining all day. I'm happy to say that I have no watch tonight. The strong breezes still continue and the sea running very high. For the last four days it has been blowing half a gale of wind. We are lying to under close reefed fore and main topsails and fore and main storms, day sails, preventer sails, etc. Indeed, for eight days we have been as steadily in the same place as if we were at anchor. Oh, that that doesn't sound a whole lot of fun, does it? No, really? it doesn't no, at all. No, no. Um, so ah. now this is collab- collaboration for for Whittle if we needed it. Yeah. Um, some 15 or 20 of our six months men have been on the point of leaving us as their times are up. But as we are out of the track of all ships and it will be many months before we meet any who can take them off or go into any civilised port, they are gradually coming round. And four of them reshipped today. Six or eight did so as soon as their six months were up. And there remains now about nine who are still undecided. Among the latter are our two Frenchmen, tip-top sailor men. I hope these will all follow the examples of their comrades, for our crew is so small already that I should be sorry to lose one of them. Yeah. I am now in the most interesting part of Martin Shuttlewick. I think, I think we'll leave that there so we can, <laughs> we can work out what the most interesting part of Martin Shuttlewick is going to be next week on Shenandoah Down Under. And, and can I just say, looking with our... With our Perfect 100% hindsight. Uh, uh, there will be some prizes taken before too long. So, But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can get a bit more out of Martin Chuzzlewit because it is a very great novel by Charles Dickens. So, on that note, Michael, I think... Um, it's uh, it's time for you to get back to Martin Chuzzlewit as well. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Because I, yeah, I, I haven't got to the bit when they, when they get to America, and I think I very much need to, because to work out exactly exactly why Midshipman Mason and every other American of the time was, <laughs> was grossly so, offended. Was so grossly offended. But until then, and until next week, this has been Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Whales, with Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. That means I'm Mob. Tally-ho. And ahoy. <laughs>